Many of you are probably familiar with the name John Newton, and if you are not, uh, after what I'm about to tell you, it will probably ring a bell. Uh, John Newton is known for uh, being a slave ship captain who was converted during a storm at sea, and that's kind of the, the snapshot uh, story of his life, he went on to become a pastor. Uh, but what a lot, of, a lot of people don't know about him is, so actually he his father was a sailor, and he, he traveled with his father for a while, um, and then his father died, and he went into the Navy, and he actually was kind of a rascal, uh, and they left him on an island uh, off the west coast of Africa for about a year and a half, and he actually basically was a slave himself during that time. Uh, some of the African slaves actually like snuck food to him so that he would, wouldn't die, uh, and he was, he was miserable. He was actually rescued, kind of just miraculous story. There was some smoke going up on the island, and this ship comes by, and it happened to be a, a ship captain who knew his father, and he rescued him. So he's on this boat for, I think, like over a year with this guy, and that's actually, they were about to die in this crazy storm, and he actually cried out to the Lord for mercy. Like, that's where, that's how John Newton was actually converted. Um, and the kind of the, the crazy story is that even after becoming a Christian, he didn't actually leave his, his ways right away. He actually kept captaining some of these slave ships for a while until uh, somewhere in his late 20s when he actually had an epileptic seizure and couldn't go out anymore. And then things kind of turned for him. He became a pastor. Uh, he preached. Uh, he wrote the song Amazing Grace, which he's most well known for, when he was 47, and then he preached right up until his death at the age of 82. Uh, if you're, you want to familiarize yourself a little bit more, I, I read uh, John Piper's biography of him. If you go to the Desiring God website, John Piper has biographies on a whole bunch of you know, well-known uh, pastors and missionaries. Uh, the one on John Newton, you can listen to it too if you don't want to read the whole thing, but um, fa fascinating, just a, a fantastic uh, overview of his life. But he's best known for the song Amazing Grace. Amazing Grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. I once was lost, but now am found, was blind, but now I see. It's a song that's so well-known and so well-loved, especially in the English-speaking world. It's sung by millions every year. It's sung at a lot of funerals. And it's ironic that so many of the people who sing that song do not actually experience the realities of the lines that they are singing, which I think ties very closely to some irony in our passage this morning, which we'll get to in a moment. But first, let's look at the context of where we're at in Luke. If you're visiting with us, if you haven't been around, we've been in Luke's gospel for a long time, <laughs> um, and we're here in chapter 18. We're going to wrap it up by the end of May, so uh, that's good. You can look forward to that. But I think especially as we're in this Easter and Lent season here, we're looking at Jesus on his journey to, to Jerusalem. He's, he's about to arrive in Jerusalem. We'll see that in chapter 19. We're actually going to be looking at that on Palm Sunday. But again, as we, since we started back up in Luke in the fall, in, in chapter 9, verse 51, where Jesus sets his face to go to Jerusalem, he's been on this journey to Jerusalem. He's been telling his disciples since chapter 9 that he's going to the cross. And now here he is right on the doorstep of Jerusalem. He's, he comes to Jericho, and there's this kind of big picture travel journey that we've been looking at, it's, it's finally kind of coming to an end as he's going to hit his destination. 
in Jerusalem. So that's kind of the big picture context to kind of help you see where we're at. Uh, but then the narrower context of this chapter and what we've been looking at the past few weeks is also very important. We mentioned last week how the rich ruler that we saw earlier in the chapter, how he is contrasted with uh, both the tax collector in, in, that, um, in the previous passage before that, how he's contrasted with the children in verses 15 to 17. And now we're going to see him contrasted with this blind beggar in this passage. And then we'll see, James is going to be preaching on the beginning of chapter 19 next week with Zacchaeus. We'll see how the blind or the rich ruler is also contrasted with Zacchaeus. I think today's text has really massive significance for the overall flow of Luke's gospel. And there are some fascinating connections with some earlier passages and some later passages in Luke that I'm really excited for us to dive in uh, and see together. So let's do that. We're going to be looking at three things in this passage. If you're a note taker, uh, you can write these down. The first thing is a clear reminder. We're going to see a clear reminder. Then we're going to see a hidden truth. And then an ironic twist. So a clear reminder, a hidden truth, and an ironic twist. The clear reminder comes here in verses 31 to 33. Not only is Jesus telling the disciples for the third time about what he's about to do, uh, the first time, the first two times we're in, both in chapter 9, right before the journey to Jerusalem, he told them that he's going to go to the cross, okay? So, Now, here we have the third time as he's just about to enter Jerusalem. So not only is this the third time that he's given this reminder, he also tells them, this is very important, that everything that is written about the Son of Man by the prophets will be accomplished. Now, he's probably speaking specifically here about the references in Psalm 22, Isaiah 53, and Daniel chapter 9 about the sufferings that he would face. So that is information that uh, was shared before in his two previous predictions. But now there is some new information that we were not told in chapter 9. And this is the who and the how of what is about to take place. The who we see in verse 32. It says, he will be delivered over to the Gentiles. Now, this is some new information. This is talking about the Romans. He would be handed over to the Romans to be, to be killed because the Jews were actually not allowed to carry out the death penalty in Jerusalem under Roman rule. So this is kind of a new revelation. And then the how is that he will be mocked and shamefully treated. Um, he will be spit upon. He will be flogged and he will be killed. Some of those details there were not shared earlier in chapter 9. So this section here is is pretty straightforward, Um, just Jesus telling the disciples what's going to happen. So what is the takeaway for us here today? Well, I think it's exactly the same as it would have been for the disciples then. The first thing is that we can trust the scriptures. He's telling the disciples all these things that are about to happen are things that you're familiar with, things that have been written down generations ago, and now they're going to come to pass. He was telling them to trust the scriptures. And that's something that we need to do too. We need to go to the scriptures and say, these things have been written down and we can trust them and we can believe them. The second thing is that we need to be reminded of the truth over and over and over again. The disciples were told by Jesus earlier in chapter 18 to receive the kingdom of God like a little child. If you have children or if you've ever worked with children, 
you know the drill, right? You have to tell them the same thing over and over and over again, and they still forget it. But we also need to remember that the problem for the disciples then and for us today is not simply that we forget, but it's that there is a divine prerogative in keeping the truth hidden for reasons that the Lord alone knows. And we're going to see that in the next section, a hidden truth. Verse 34, but they understood none of these things. This saying was hidden for them, from them, and they did not grasp what was said. The first question that we have to ask here is why? Why were these things hidden from them? And I think this question will be answered as we think about the second question. The second question is, have we seen anything like this before? Has Jesus said anything similar to this before? And the answer is yes, a couple times. In Luke chapter 8, after Jesus tells the parable of the sower, which I believe has such huge significance for understanding conversion, why some people believe and why some people do not, after he gives that parable, he gives this explanation of the parable. When the disciples asked him what the parable meant, he said, to you it has been given to know the secrets of the kingdom of God, but for others they are in parables so that seeing they may not see, and hearing they may not understand. He quotes from Isaiah chapter 6 there. Seeing they may not see, and hearing they may not understand. The purpose of the parables is so that some people may not understand. That word understand there is the same word that's used here to say that the disciples understood none of these things. So at some level, the Lord is keeping them here from understanding these things. In Luke chapter 10, after the 72 return from casting out demons, Jesus tells them not to rejoice that the spirits are subject to them, but to rejoice that their names are written in heaven. Then Jesus prays and he says, I thank you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that you have hidden, same word that's used here in verse 34, that these things are hidden from the disciples. Jesus praises the Father that he has hidden these things from the wise and understanding and revealed them to little children. Yes, Father, for such was your gracious will. All things have been handed over to me by my Father, and no one knows who the Son is except the Father, or who the Father is except the Son, and anyone to whom the Son chooses to reveal him. So it's very clear throughout Luke that, G that there is this divine prerogative of who can see and who cannot see, and it's in the Lord's hands. But then we read something very interesting right after that prayer. Jesus turns to his disciples and he said privately, so he turns from the 72 to the 12, and he says to the 12, Blessed are your eyes that see what you see. For I tell you that many prophets and kings desired to see what you see and did not see it, and to hear what you hear and did not hear it. So at this stage in the game, the disciples are a privileged audience. They have seen and heard things that others have desired to, to see and hear, but they were not able so what in the world is going on here in chapter 18? There seems like there's some contradiction there, right? Why is the reality of Jesus' death and resurrection hidden from the disciples here in chapter 18 so that they couldn't grasp what he was saying? I love what J.C. Ryle has to say about this. 
He says, before we wonder at these first weak disciples for not understanding our Lord's words about his death, we should do well to look around us. It may humble us to remember that thousands of so-called Christians neither understand nor value Christ's death at this present day. So clearly the problem is with other Christians out there, right? And we should look at them and point the finger. Well, if you know J.C. Ryle, you know where he's going with this. He says, let us look well to our own hearts. We live in a day when false doctrines about Christ's death abound on every side. Let us see that Christ crucified is really the foundation of our own hopes and that Christ's atoning death for sin is indeed the whole life of our souls. Let us look well at our own hearts, Ryle warns us. And as we transition into this last section, I think part of the application for us should be crystal clear. We are all blind beggars. This is made clear for us as we see an ironic twist. Notice the first person that Jesus encounters after the blind-hearted disciples. It is a man who is actually physically blind. And there's a great irony in what is about to take place here. But before we look at the bigger picture of kind of why this scene is so significant in Luke's gospel and in the grander scheme of redemptive history, we need to look at some of the specific details of this encounter between Jesus and this blind man. The same account appears in Matthew and Mark. In Mark, you're probably familiar with the name Bartimaeus, blind Bartimaeus. This is the same account that appears in Mark and in Matthew. So a couple things about our friend Bartimaeus. He is helpless and destitute. He's sitting by the roadside begging. And remember the contrast between the rich ruler who had it all and who wouldn't follow Jesus because he loved his wealth more and then this desperate man who is sitting here with nothing to offer. Second, is that when he hears that it is Jesus of Nazareth passing by, he cries out to him in verse 38, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. Now, why doesn't this blind man shout, Jesus, son of Nazareth? That's what he was told. He was told Jesus, son of Nazareth, was passing by. Or why doesn't he cry out, good teacher, like the rich ruler? What's the significance of this title here, son of David? This is a messianic title. It points to Jesus as the long-awaited and promised king of Israel who would come to deliver his people. And this blind man, he appropriately cries out to the king for mercy. A mercy carries with it the idea of compassion or pity, which this man certainly needed. But it also carries with it the idea of forgiveness or pardon. Now, a king had the power to pardon and to show compassion to someone of this man's stature. I think one of the most incredible pictures in the Old Testament is the uh, account of David and Mephibosheth in 2 Samuel chapter 9. In 2 Samuel 9, David is now the king in Israel. King Saul and his son Jonathan had been killed in battle. And David asks, after becoming king, 
is there still anyone left of the house of Saul that I may show him kindness for Jonathan's sake? Now, the word kindness here is actually the same word that in the Greek translation of the Old Testament, it's the same word for mercy here. So David is asking, is there anyone still alive in Saul's house that I can show mercy to? He could have had Saul's entire house wiped out. And he says, is there still someone that I can show mercy or kindness to? And David is told that Jonathan's son, Mephibosheth, who is crippled in his feet, that he is still alive. And what does David do? David calls him in and he says, do not fear, for I will show you kindness or mercy for the sake of your father, Jonathan, and I will restore to you all the land of Saul, your father, and you shall eat at my table always. What an amazing picture of reversal, of mercy, a forgotten crippled man the grandson of the former king whom David, the rightful king, restores to a place of honor in the kingdom. But what I want us to notice is that as powerful as David was, as much as he was able to extend that type of mercy to Mephibosheth, what was he not able to do? He wasn't able to heal his crippled legs, right? David was a powerful and mighty king who could show mercy and compassion, but he could not physically heal this man as much as he probably wanted to, as much as he wished there was someone in Israel who could come and heal him. And he didn't even seek that, right? When the blind man asked Jesus to have mercy on him, Jesus doesn't just offer a restoration of land or a place at an earthly table. He asked the blind beggar, what do you want me to do for you? And the blind man knows who he's asking. So he asked for the impossible, something that only the Messiah, the promised son of David, could actually do. Notice his response, Lord. Again, he knows who he's talking to. Lord, let me recover my sight. Jesus replied in verse 42, this is actually a command. Recover your sight. Your faith has made you well. Again, let's go back and contrast this blind beggar with the rich ruler. What did we see in the rich ruler? No faith, no salvation. He has all that the world can offer. He goes away sad and he doesn't follow Jesus. Contrast that with the blind beggar. He has faith and he is saved. When Jesus said, your faith has made you well, that word therefore made you well, some translations say your faith has saved you. It is the word for salvation. He's not just saying you're physically healed. He's saying your soul is restored. You are saved. He has no worldly possessions. He follows Jesus, unlike the rich ruler, and he rejoices and glorifies God. There's something else going on here that is incredibly significant, and I think it should be somewhat obvious from what we saw with the disciples having Jesus saying, hidden from them in verse 34, and then this blind beggar receiving his sight. It should be obvious that there's more going on here than just seeing with physical eyes. And I think the, the irony of this passage is that you have these disciples who 
for three years have walked with Jesus, right? They've seen him do miracle after miracle after miracle. There should be no doubt in their minds who he is, right? And yet they don't see. And here's this man who has never, as far as we know, for his entire life, he's never seen with his actual physical eyes. He's only heard about who Jesus is and what he has done. Yet he puts his faith and his trust in Jesus without having ever had any evidence, right? Except for what he's heard from other people. Tremendous irony there. But what we see here also, this recovery of sight is actually a huge theme in the ministry of Jesus that bookends his earthly ministry. Now, Luke loves to kind of do these bookend or inclusio things where like he'll start a passage with some theme and then he'll wrap it up and end a passage with this theme. We kind of actually see that at this theme of recovery of sight at the beginning and the end of Jesus' ministry. Here at the end, this is the last miracle that Luke records for us. So this is, this is the last thing that Jesus does to show his power in, before he obviously rises from the dead. But do you remember where we saw this at the beginning of Jesus' ministry? This recovery of sight? Luke chapter 4, in the synagogue in Nazareth, where Jesus stands up and reads from the scroll of Isaiah. He reads from Isaiah 61. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me, because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovery of sight to the blind. It's the exact same word here that Jesus uses with the blind beggar. So Jesus is reading from the Isaiah scroll, recovery of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. Remember that after that, he rolls up the scroll, hands it to the attendant, goes and sits down. He says, today this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. Again, this, Luke is just banging this drum over and over and over, right? Jesus is the fulfillment of all these Old Testament prophecies. His very ministry started off this way. And what does it say? All the eyes, the eyes of everyone in the place were on him, right? They were amazed. They're like, who is this guy? Until he goes after him, right? He tells about the widow and the widow who alone was, was fed and the leper who alone was healed. And they're like, oh, shoot, he's talking about us. They get mad and they try to throw him off a cliff and kill him. Since day one, they've been coming after him, right? They've been coming after him to kill him. So this here is a really beautiful picture of things coming full circle in Jesus' ministry. He promised recovery of sight to the blind at the very beginning of his ministry, and now he demonstrates his mercy and power right here for all to see, just before he rides into Jerusalem on Palm Sunday, while the crowds shout, Blessed is the King who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest. The same crowd that five days later would shout, crucify him, and we have no king but Caesar. Such is the fickle human heart. Such is the blindness of sin that must be overcome by divine mercy and grace. Either this makes total sense and is clear to you because the son of David has had mercy on your soul and opened your blind spiritual eyes so that you see the crucified and risen Christ as your only hope and you have responded by following and glorifying him, which is a daily commitment of cross-bearing and death to self. 
Christian, that is what is true of you. And you need to keep pressing on. Keep following your Lord, though the road may be rough and the journey may be difficult. The reward at the end is worth it. Amazing grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like you. You once were lost, but now you're found. We're blind, but now you see. It's either that or your eyes are still blinded and you're still in your sin. But that is not where you need to remain. The invitation is before you. Come, embrace the one who bled and died and rose so that you might have life. That your blind spiritual eyes may be opened and you might see clearly for the first time in your life. And come, follow Jesus. The beauty of this table that we're going to come to this morning is not simply some nice reminder of what Jesus did for us a long time ago. This is an invitation to come and to commune with the risen Christ. Luke's gospel ends, I love this, I can't wait to get to chapter 24, but Luke's gospel ends in chapter 24 with this incredible encounter between the risen Christ and two of his disciples who are traveling on the road to Emmaus. He appears to them on the road, but it says, their eyes were kept from recognizing him. After a while, Jesus explains to them, get this, how the entire Old Testament pointed forward to him. Okay? He opens their eyes and then he explains all of redemptive history and how it's all been fulfilled in his death and burial and resurrection. Then he goes into their, to their home with them and it says, when he was at table with them, he broke the bread and blessed it, took the bread and blessed it and broke it and gave it to them. And their eyes were opened and they recognized him. And then he vanished from their sight. They said to each other, did not our hearts burn within us while he talked with us on the road, while he opened to us the scriptures? And it wasn't just communion with the risen Christ that resulted from their eyes being opened, as amazing as that is but also the commissioning of the church to carry out the work of proclaiming the gospel to the world. The two disciples went back and they told the 11 apostles and those gathered with them that Jesus had appeared to them on the road. Then Jesus appeared to all of them behind closed doors and he said the following, These are my words that I spoke to you while I was still with you that everything written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. Are you seeing a theme here? <laughs> then he opened their minds to understand the scriptures. And he said to them, thus it is written that the Christ should suffer and on the third day rise from the dead and that repentance and forgiveness of sins should be proclaimed in his name to all nations beginning from Jerusalem. You are witnesses of these things, and behold, I am sending the promise of my Father upon you. But stay in the city until you are clothed with power from on high. They finally got it. They finally saw with new eyes when Jesus opened up their eyes to understand the scriptures. And he not only 
communed with them, but he sent them out. He commissioned them to go out and do what the church is called to do, to proclaim the gospel to the nations. This table that we come to this morning is for all of those who have had their eyes open by the risen Christ. You don't have to be a member at Livingstone Church. You don't have to be Presbyterian to come to this table. If you are one who says, yes, Christ has opened my eyes and I trust in him alone by faith, then this table is open for you. So come and eat and drink and testify that you once were lost, but now you're found. You were blind, but now you see.